And I want to thank uh, Pastor Dave and Russ, and also Kurt Johnson and our board, all of, and all of you for allowing me and encouraging me to get away, at least in body, for some scheduled vacation, even though given the circumstances, my head and my heart were still here in many ways, much of the time. However, in spite of things, I did allow myself and even discipline myself to get a bit higher up the mountain in several ways, uh, both in my head space and my heart space, but also in body. Uh, one of the weeks that we were gone, our son and his and, and his wife, our daughter-in-law, uh, came out to Maui to be with us, and they took it on as their mission to get me out to do things, uh, including a mountain back mountain bike. Something's not working here. There we go, including a mountain bike run down Mount Haleakala, not on the road like everyone else, of course, on a backcountry trail that's been opened up, all of it downhill, 2,200 meters vertical drop, 2.2 kilometers vertical, two and a half hours of riding, most of it was above the clouds, it was awesome. Few minor challenges like really loose volcanic rock at the top, roots and tight turns on some of the signal track further down. But if you do it right, it basically just flows. Whew! Great fun. I only fell twice. Thankfully not because I was going too fast, just not quite back in sync technically yet. But it's great to be back here, back in the book of 2 Timothy, today in chapter 3. And I would invite you to take your Bible or your Bible app and turn to... Uh, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy, close to the end of Paul's letters in the New Testament, which is a jarring reminder to us that life, real life, not just life as it comes to us, but the life that we really deep down want, real life is not a smooth flowing downhill ride. It is very, very much an uphill journey, an upstream challenge. 2 Timothy, the last book written by Paul from prison, knowing he's not going to get out and back into his leadership saddle, written to Timothy, the, the younger man that he has been developing and now commissioning to take over the leadership of the Jesus movement called the church at a very, very tenuous, a very crucial time. And there are two dominant lines of thinking, it appears, in Timothy's mind as he ponders this task that's before him. Number one, ah, there's no way I'm ready for this. I'm too young. I'm not Paul. And Paul starts off the book by getting that one off the table. No, you're not like me except for one thing. You have the same Holy Spirit in you that I have in me. Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. I remind you, Timothy, to keep alive the gift that God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For What was that gift? The Spirit of God. And he has given us, the Spirit of God given us as this gift, does not make us timid, Timothy. Instead, his Spirit fills us with power, with love, and with self-control. Timothy, you may not think you're ready, but God has put, in, has put you here. You have his Spirit in you, the Spirit of power, the power that raised Jesus from the dead in you. The Spirit of love, not a feeling of love 
But the realization that the God of the universe, the one that we tend to avoid, the one that we sometimes fight against, the one that we demand from and treat like a vending machine to fulfill our wants, in Jesus, the God of the universe has loved you with an everlasting love, and his spirit of love is in you. The spirit who enlightens your mind to see the beauty, the truth of God's truth, And to see life in light of God's truth in you. Self-control, as it's listed here, is the ability to control our thinking and not let our thoughts run away from us and our feelings take over us. You are more ready than you know, Timothy, to take on this uphill battle. And in chapter 2, he talks about him taking on life like a soldier. Because you know you're going to win. And at the end, there is a well done. The soldier obeys his commanding officer, not his own heart. Take it on like a farmer because he knows there's going to be a harvest and that the fruit that you reap is way more than the seeds you've sown. The soldier just keeps working hard and patiently. Like the athlete who knows that only those who win get the prize. And so she competes with everything she has. And what is it that Timothy is to fight with? One thing, the gospel. The good news from God that he has claimed us for himself even though I was not going after him. It is the gospel that is the power of God alive in everyone who claims Jesus and trusts in him. But that leads to the second line of thinking that will be on Timothy's mind as he looks at this challenge. Paul doesn't directly say it's on his mind, but he assumes it because it's what he takes on directly as we come to chapter 3 and he started to talk a little bit about it in chapter 2. And that is this, if I have the Holy Spirit, the spirit of power, of love, the spirit who enables us to discipline ourselves to think right and think well, if I have that spirit, why does life have to feel so hard? What am I doing wrong? What is God doing wrong? Paul doesn't address it as a why question. He goes right past the why part and says, you know what? Timothy, one key mark of having that spirit in you is that you will be able to embrace and give yourself to this uphill journey, a life that is marked by taking on hard things, not running away from hard things, actually suffering. I think I've told a story about our, before about our son when he was 13 years old, last day of school um, and, uh, in, in June. He was out riding bike with a buddy of his. He fell. And as it turned out, broke his arm. Went uh, to emergency, got an x-ray, got a big cast on for the whole summer. The next day, we were driving out uh, to my mother's place an hour down the road, and, and he was quiet the whole trip till quite a bit, just about at the end, he said from the back seat, he said, Dad, is it true that all of life hurts? I thought, wow, that's pretty reflective for my 13-year-old son. And I thought, that didn't come from his mind. I said, what do you mean, Mike? And he said, well, as it turned out, as he was uh, getting his x-ray taken, they dragged him from the waiting room. The, the, the tech dragged him from the waiting room into this little room with all this metal and equipment. And, and she said, uh, put your hand on this table. And so he did. And she said, turn it. And he, you know, did like this. And she grabbed it. And he said, ouch! And this tech with the, uh, obviously the personality of the steel around her said, Get used to it. All of life hurts. I thought, oh, my 13-year-old son, does he have to learn that? 
Really? Right? That's what a lot of this book of 2 Timothy is about. Yes, Timothy, you're ready, but that doesn't mean it will all just flow. You need to be clear about the uphill battle that's in front of you. Chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. But mark this, Timothy. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will become clear to everyone. So let's go back and walk our way through this section from the beginning. Mark this, says Paul. Timothy, you've got to know, let's be clear about one thing. There will be terrible times in the last days. It's not going to be easy. Get used to it, Timothy. All of life hurts. So, is this Paul being sort of an Eeyore kind of guy? Cup half empty guy? Like, come on, Paul. Let's talk about the positive. We're in this wonderful season where you actually have a choice about which professional sport team finals you can watch. Both basketball and hockey are in the latter stages of some epic championship rounds. I haven't had much time to watch these games, but when I do, my mind always goes to wondering what is in the mind of the coach? And what might the coach be saying in between periods or during a timeout? Now, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I can tell you one thing. None of these coaches of any of these teams is just emphasizing the positive. In communicating realistically and clearly and powerfully, they first talk about the team they're up against. They do. It's not going to be a breeze. It's an uphill battle. These guys are good. And one of the greatest dangers, believe it or not, is overconfidence. I just read the quote yesterday from one of the guys who's just lost a game on a championship team. And he said, yep, the problem when you lose is lack of confidence. The problem when you win in a championship round is overconfidence. you got to know what it is you're up against. When is it that the church will face this battle, says Paul? Uh, in the last days. What are the last days? Well, that phrase is used in the New Testament in two kinds of ways. Uh, most often, when it talks about the last days, it's describing the period of time that began when Jesus rose from the dead and left the scene, and ends when he will come again to take, it, take us to be with himself. That whole period of time is called the last days. And the reason it's last days is because everything has happened that needs to happen. Jesus died, rose again. Next thing's going to happen, he's going to come against God, going to be over. A few times, but rarely, it's used to describe a, a period at the very end of the last days. So which one of those is Paul using here? Well, he's warning Timothy about the world that Timothy is living in. 
So he's using it in that first kind of way, right? Sometimes people will ask him, Mel, do you think we're in the last days? Well, unless we've suddenly entered some kind of a fantasy time warp, done some time travel backwards before Jesus came on the scene, well, yeah, we're in the last days. Last time I checked, Jesus has died, risen, ascended. But the world seems to be getting so much work, doesn't it? Worse, doesn't it? Well, the world has always been going downhill as a general trend. Is, is it worse now than in some other periods of history? I, I don't think it's actually worse probably today than when Paul is writing to Timothy. The decadence, the immorality of the Roman Empire was pretty significant. So let's just assume that to varying degrees this list represents general characteristics of a fallen world that wants to live apart from God. Okay, So, do we live in last, last days? Yes, that's where Paul's coming from. And how does he describe the uphill battle of the last days? Well, first of all, there's this list. 19 things, just in a ticky box kind of way. But before we look at this list a little more closely, let's see where it is that he takes us with this list, how he comes out of it, because when we do that, it's going to totally change how we read this list. He ends the list by saying, have nothing to do with such people. And then he drops the bombshell. I'm not talking about people out there. I'm talking about the kinds of people that you allow to influence in here. Teachers that are so inspiring, convincing, because all they want to do is emphasize what you want to hear. They are the kind, he says, who worm their way into homes, gain control over gullible women, who are loaded down with sin, swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth, men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because their folly will be clear to everyone. Now, before we get too uptight here, let's be clear about what Paul is not saying. He is not saying that all women are weak and vulnerable, okay? He's not saying that any more than he is saying that all teachers are shysters. What he is saying is that the way these downhill factors that he's, gonna, that he's talked about get into the body of Jesus is that even people who say they follow God can be vulnerable because we do want to hear the positive stuff, the cheery stuff, the sound good, feel good stuff. And why are we vulnerable to that? Because we don't get the significance of the list. We'll come back in a few minutes to something else in these verses, but for now, what we need to see is that Paul's greatest concern with the list, especially for the next generation as he hands it over to Timothy, is that we need to realize that, is that this list is what we are vulnerable to the church of Jesus Christ is going to win in the end, but that doesn't mean that individual churches will also always stay true. Churches fade for various reasons, but the number one reason that churches fade from generation to generation is because we fail to understand how vulnerable we are to the list. So let's look at the list, beginning at verse 2. And as we read this again, make some of your own observational thoughts about this list. What do you notice about it, how it's organized, what the central concern of this list is, okay? Let's read it. People will become lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, 
disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. So what do you think Paul's central concern in this list is? Well, how does it begin and how does it end? He begins this list with the leading characteristic that leads us to be vulnerable in last day's times. Lovers of themselves. What? That's not so bad, is it? Well, Paul would say, that's what I'm talking about. You're vulnerable. <laughs> Look at how it ends. Lovers themselves in contrast to what we were created to be. Lovers of God. And in between, there's a whole bunch of statements about love. What we do and what we don't love. This whole list is about misplaced love. The watershed point, the point at which we abandon that uphill journey is at the point at which loving God with all our hearts, with all our minds, with all of our strength, how much all, all, how much does all mean? It means all, loving God, first loving God, most loving God, always loving God at all times and in all ways. The watershed points where we start saying, you know, I just need to love myself a little more. Uh, maybe not. Loving myself begins with what I naturally do. And that is seeing everything through my eyes. Which is in contrast to having the spirit of sound thinking, self-control that we have. And we are all prone to that. Two days ago, this Friday morning, as I was studying this text, and as I was studying, I always ask God's Spirit to point out ways in which I need to process this stuff for myself, and I was doing that, and I began to smell this wonderful aroma coming from, I study in my upstairs office at home, and coming from downstairs was this wonderful, wonderful aroma. I smelled it for like over half an hour. The baking of bacon. Mm. And that smell made me have these good feelings about my wonderful wife. I can't believe how thoughtful she is. She's going away this weekend on a girl's retreat and my wonderful wife is baking some bacon for me for the weekend. I am so thankful for her. Thank you, Lord. So when it got to be around noon, I go down to the kitchen to give her a big hug and a kiss and I see her putting this whole stack of bacon into the cooler she's packing for her retreat. <laughs> I knew that she had to provide waffles and bacon for breakfast at her retreat. I knew that. And yet, I still processed what I was smelling through my own wants and my own needs and my own feelings, just assuming it must be for me. We are all lovers of ourselves first. That's who we are. Loving God with all my heart, with purity, singularity of focus is where those who have chosen to give themselves to the uphill journey are going to end up. We're going to be there someday, folks. That's the beauty of heaven. There will be nothing to distract me from doing everything for him, in light of him, seeing everything through him, with him. I will one day get there. 
That's a guarantee if I've chosen to accept him and, and him alone as my ultimate saving lover and only leader. But until that day, it's an uphill journey, folks. Just is. Now, let's skip to the next paragraph again. To, just to, to see Paul's description about our vulnerabilities to theories and teachings and perspectives that feed on and validate misplaced love. Why are we susceptible to this downhill factor? What is our vulnerability, really, the, the center point of our vulnerability? Paul says that what happens is that these feel-good, sound-good things prey on our evil desires. People who are swayed dominated, loaded up by all kinds of evil desires. Now, we've seen that word before a number of times in Paul's teaching and Peter and in, in, in uh, the book of James. All of these people talk about that word. And, and we know that it's not really two words, evil desires. It's one word, and evil is not really in there. It's, it's, a, word with the, it's a word about passions, and the prefix epi really means above, on top of, or, or over the top. Controlling desires, allowing legitimate desires to become controlling desires, to be distorted. Desires on overdrive, as, as Tim Keller puts it. In the next chapter, a chapter in the very next paragraph, or next chapter, in chapter 4, verse 3, Paul reiterates, he says, For the time will come when men will not put up with sound teaching, instead to suit their own Desires on overdrive, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Do you see what, what Paul is emphasizing here? He's saying that the core problem is not false teachers. The core problem is that there is a natural audience for false teachers in us. And that audience too quickly includes me when I start the downhill slide of thinking that I need to, I need to just love myself more. I don't need to love myself, I need to get over myself. And the way God allows me to get over myself is to help me see that he, he, the God of the universe, has loved me unconditionally, unashamedly. As the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is not ashamed to call me his brother. Actually, he's proud to call me his brother, not because I'm worth it, not because I'm a cute little old guy, but because he is amazing in his love. He's so amazing in his love that Ephesians 1 tells us that Jesus is looking forward to the day in spite of my failures, my repeated failures. He's looking forward to the day when he can stand before God and present me to him as his inheritance. Here is my guy. Can you believe that? And what is the truth intended for? To help me love myself? No. It's supposed to help me love God more and see that the uphill journey of placing love for God above love for myself is, is worth it. I, I love the way Don Carson puts it in commenting on this statement, this concept. He says, the antithesis of loving God is worse than not loving God. The opposite of loving God is not not loving God. It's actually worse than that. It is loving something else supremely. More than God. Most commonly, ourselves or the things that we have to have. Which is what this list delineates. 
It's not a comprehensive list. It's a list that talks about tendencies we display when we start loving ourselves first, some of the symptoms and signs when we love ourselves instead of loving God. What's a sign I'm starting to live by loving myself? Number one on the list, lovers of money. Money is the number one thing that enables us to love ourselves more, right? What do I use my money for? Primarily to pamper myself, to make myself look good, feel good, to take care of myself, right? Well, since I have a big heart, whatever is left over, oh my goodness, sorry, nothing left over this time. No, just like last time. As a matter of fact, you're in the hole again. And why are you in the hole? Because your access to money through credit has helped you treat your desires as needs, as necessities, as have-to-haves. No, I, I don't quite have it, but I can borrow it. i, I got to have that, right? First Timothy 6, Paul has told Timothy how to teach people to manage their money. Basically, like Jesus, invest it in God's kingdom. Make that the priority. Give it away. Now, we need to stop right here. And, and I want to just warn you of something that's coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, not warn you, prepare you. Let's... Yeah, prepare you. We're going to invite you to do a kingdom investment test. We'll give ourselves a tangible opportunity to grow more into and demonstrate our commitment to love God first and most and pass this loving self or loving God over self test. And, and, and as many of you know, we're, we're going to be doing some renovations in our facility, not, not in this room, but in various other parts of our facility. Um to primarily our gym and, and a storage area so that we can get rid of those chairs in the hallway and a few other things uh, in order to make us, help us be more effective in the mission that God is calling us to. And guess what? It takes money. And so in the next month or so, we're going to be asking you to, to make a bit more of an investment in the kingdom of God, an above and beyond investment. And the reason we can do the things that we do for God is because we as God's people believe it's a priority to give to God's kingdom. To say, I'll put the first part of my income, the top part, to God's mission. That's my number one priority. And that mission begins right here in our backyard. Now, this project is a is bit of a, a test project for us. It's, it's, it's just a small amount, about $500,000. Hopefully, we'll be so excited about it that in a couple of years, we're going to go for the home run. Uh, building a children's wing and doing some other renovations that we've been wanting to do for a long time. Without being ashamed about it and embarrassed about it, we're going to ask you to make a declaration with your money that you really do love God more than yourself. That's the test. And we're going to ask you, and I, 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 we're going to bring this up again in a couple of weeks, but we're going to ask you at home to begin asking yourselves three questions. Number one, what can we afford? What can we afford to give? But that's the easy question. The second question is, what can we give up? What can we sacrifice so that we can give. My wife and I have begun talking about that. We know exactly what we're going to sacrifice to give. And the third one is how much am I willing to trust God for as I give that he's going to provide for me what I need? Would you, would you begin processing that as a family? And, and, and it, it might take you a while to make a good decision, a united decision, so don't, don't, don't wait. Start talking about it. Um, now, not to make us feel guilty, but, but I, am, I am so optimistic that it's doable because if you add up all of the incomes of all 
of those who call Ellerslie our church home, $500,000 extra by the end of this year, it's not a big stretch. If we can't do it, we've got to ask the question whether it's a sign that our distorted love for ourselves and what we call needs is playing out in what we do with our money. Lovers of self, lovers of money. Okay, let's move on. It's not going to get easier, though. Second sign we're replacing loving God with loving ourselves is boastful. Boastful. Letting our love for ourselves coming out, come out in our mouths. Drawing attention to ourselves. I'm here. Letting other people know what we know. What we have done. What we could do if somebody let us. How we could or how we used to do it so much better than it's being done now. The need to have our name attached to somebody. We look through the credits. Hey, how come my name's on there? I, I did just as much as they did. Whoa. You thought it was going to get less convicting, didn't you? Let's go back and talk about money some more. <laughs> no. Boastful. And then what's underneath boasting? Arrogance. Pride. It's taking it to a new level. The boastful person talks about his greatness. The arrogant person actually thinks they're the smartest, best, greatest person in the room. Abusive. This is a word that it's not talking about physical abuse, although it could include that. It's a word that actually talks about how we use our word. It's the word from which we get the word blaspheme. Not only do we put ourselves higher than others, we use words to put others down, to speak ill about or even evil about somebody. We do it to hurt them. Well, no, we do it to put them in their place because somebody had to do it. Huh? We actually are considering ourselves righteous, courageous. It took courage for me to say that. No, it didn't. It didn't take courage. It just took lack of self-control to not say it. Right? Woo. Disobedient to parents. What were parents considered to be in those days? They were the first and primary authority. Absolute authority over children. This is talking about an attitude of disrespect for authority. And when is disrespect for authority tested? When we disagree with an authority, right? It's a sign I place myself as the central love when I consider that I have to answer to myself first and myself alone. The rest of this list is fascinating. If you look over it briefly, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, not self. Notice anything? It's all... A, a, a positive trait with an unattached to it or a, a without attached. In, in, uh, uh, in, in the Greek language, there's a lot more unprefixes than in the English. A positive word with a negative prefix, basically meaning having a lack of a good quality or lost the good quality. Some years ago, I'd been meditating on this list in my home study and I. I got into my car to go to, the, to my office at the church and, and was, uh, was listening to CBC Radio. And they were talking about the need for sp- more spending on social programs. And someone sort of played the, the, the counterpoint to it and, and, and said, you know, it seems to me that our society has become a black hole society. We have so many demands and that have become needs. There's, there's no way we could ever afford to pay for all the social programs we think we have to have. And as I was listening to that, in light of my study of this list, it hit me it, that, that, that 
not only is that an economic characteristic of our society, a black hole society, it's become an economic problem because it's an inherent condition. When you have a society in which self-rules, in which self-love has become the center, you develop a black hole society. It's a society in which more actually becomes less. The more you get, the more you need. Why? Because the more self becomes the center, the less you have of some of the key qualities that truly make for more. What do you lack? We lack the qualities, the commitment to living, and some of the uphill behaviors that mark a lover of God. Less gratitude, less holiness, inner purity, less love. The the word for love here is only used two times in the Old Testament. It's, It's not one of those typical Uh, go-to words for love like agape or eros or or phileo. It's a word that means family affection. Family affection. There's less of that when self rules. Now, as I was thinking about it, it, it hit me that there's a bit of an irony, I think, that the primary place, the primary laboratory where we are to learn that we are not the center of the universe in today's world is the place where we're taught we're the center of the universe. Right? Guess what? We believe it. But it's also the place in which children who are taught that the center of the universe see their parents fight with each other to be the center. When is the last time Your kids heard you say to each other, I don't care. People who love care. What else should we be learning in that home laboratory that there's less of? Less forgiveness, which is more than just saying, I'm sorry. And mom and dad, the number one way your children learn that forgiveness is more than just saying I'm sorry is how they see you live it out. This is not the usual word for forgiveness. It's a word that originally referred to not having a treaty or a covenant. And out of that comes our word irreconcilable. Isn't it fascinating that one of the perfectly acceptable reasons for dissolving relationships today is just irreconcilable differences The real issue is that another mark of a black hole society is not having a covenant kind of relationship. Not just in marriage, but in so quickly letting go of relationships when you don't see eye to eye with someone and refusing to formally connect and say, i got to stick this through. That's what he's talking about. And we become slanderous. Less self-control. We, we even use that as an excuse. Well, I, just, I sort of just lost it. <laughs> you mean you're confessing to me? Or is that an excuse? Self-control begins with recognizing that as a fallen person, my desires are distorted. And freedom and fulfillment will never come from just fulfilling distorted desires, seeing my desires as my needs. More will become less. Brutal goes on. You see, the problem with self-love is that self-love self-destructs. It just does. That's what Paul is saying here. Now let's move down to the summary. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. 
Could there be a better description of the world in which we live? It's okay to be spiritual. What it's not okay is to actually understand and believe what God calls good news. The gospel. That Jesus died to make me his as what? Paul says, the power of God. The gospel is the power of God for good news, for, for salvation, leading to what? Righteousness, Romans 1.17. To actually help us aim for and go for the uphill battle that God is calling us to. A form of godliness where all you have to do is, is do some rituals like attend church or do something else to make you think you're okay. It's not about rituals. It's about an empowering relationship with the Spirit of God that comes into you when you accept Jesus' invitation to claim you as his. An inner power to become truly more, not less, more of what you were created to be. To take on the uphill ride with joy, commitment, and optimism. Paul is reminding Timothy that because we have the spirit of self-discipline, self-controlled thinking, we, are, we don't have to be controlled by our urges and desires. You see, Paul is not saying all of this to make Timothy more pessimistic. Paul is honest about what we're going to face in the world around us, but he says it to set Timothy up and help him understand that the kind of church environment that will thrive in precisely the... <laughs> the the kind of world that our culture is, is this kind of church. But let's zoom out again to the overall picture. What's the central watershed problem? It's misplaced love, loving self instead of loving God. But here's what loving God does. Let's just talk for a few minutes about loving God. There's this wonderful statement by the psalmist in Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight. That's a passion word. A love word. Men, when you love your wife, what do you do? You delight in her. Isn't that when she feels loved by you? When you delight in her? Right, ladies? So you men are looking stunned. Now look what it says closely. Delight yourself in the Lord, which is a discipline. Delight yourself in the Lord. It's a command. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Does that mean that this is a formula for me to get all those things that I want with my desires and urges? No. We're reading it wrong. What it's saying is make God the thing that you want most, your biggest want, and you're never going to be disappointed. You're going to get what you want. You get what you want when you have the right wants. Delight in the Lord. And your delights will be fulfilled. It is our desires that need to be refocused, retrained. That's the real part of the uphill journey. Look at the downward direction your wants are taking you and recognize that your heart was created to love God first. Love God fully. And learn to want God more than anything. And you get it. You will. Now let's go back to the coach in the locker room. First, what he's saying to his team is don't underestimate the challenge. 
Let's be clear about what we're facing here. They're not going to roll over just because we skate onto the ice with some emotional pump-me-up song. It's a huge challenge. But first of all, the challenge is in here. My tendency to misplace my love, make myself the center of my love. Now, with that in mind, how are we going to go out there? How are we going to go out onto the ice? How are we going to take on this uphill challenge? In the last part of the chapter, Paul outlines for Timothy the game strategy. It's not all that complicated. Keep it simple. Two primary strategies that Paul emphasizes to keep yourself strong and going on the uphill journey. Number one, choose the right mentors. And what are the right mentors? Those who have handled suffering, difficulty, well who have endured and come out positive, optimistic, still faithfully pursuing the truth. You, however, Timothy, know all about my teaching. Forget about those guys. You know my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, patience, love, and endurance, persecution, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me? You know it. When I was in Antioch with you, Iconium, Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet, the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. Timothy, all of life hurts. Well, evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue what we've heard and learned and have become convinced of because you know those, including me and your mom and grandmother, from whom you learned it. The number one guarantee of someone who pursues that uphill journey, what is right and good and what God wants, is that there's going to be pressure, persecution. That's not just true of Paul. He says it's true of everyone who wants to stand with Jesus and point to Jesus. The only, one, the only way people know is it's real. If you can still love when you're being attacked. If you can still point to and live the beauty and the glory and the freedom of the gospel when you're under pressure and constricted. When you don't succumb to the shiny and the glitzy and the feel-good stuff. If you want to keep going where you really want to go, you won't get there by following your heart. You're not going to get there by just taking another seminar. You have to look for and connect with those who have proven they are enduring faithfully through tough times. And that's what the church is supposed to be with each other. Don't try to imitate highly gifted people. Imitate those who have struggled well, who are faithful, who've endured. There are very few highly gifted people, and most of them are into themselves. And they only know how to use their giftedness. They've never learned how to live in the power of the Spirit of God. Don't just go to people with some new formula. No, there are no new formulas. Those people are promoting themselves. It's all about winning the battle of loving God first when everything in my being says, me first, me, me, me. So choose as mentors those who have have struggled well, who have faithfully endured tough times. And number two, take as your manual the only word you can trust, the word of God. And how from infancy, he says, you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
All scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good word. To take God's word as this manual means you will develop a relationship with God's word that's characterized by three things. First of all, it's not just a how-to manual. You need to learn to trust the Bible for what it claims to be. It's not just man's words about God. It is literally God's word to man. All scripture is God-breathed. What that's saying is that it is breathed out from God, not just some writings that are human that God has sort of breathed into. Big difference. God didn't take some human writing and say, hmm, that's pretty good. Sort of put his breath of approval on it. No, it's literally from God. Older translation says all scripture is inspired, which is at the time not a, not a bad word uh, as a translation. But the problem is that when we hear the word inspired, what we most often hear is inspiring. There's a big difference between inspired and inspiring. Inspiring means it, it gives you a good feeling. It motivates you. It, it helps you live better. A thought for the day. A chicken soup for the soul. Nice thought. You pick your way through it until you get something that lifts you up. No. Inspired means that it is what God says, that it is true, regardless of how it makes me feel. Inspired means that what it says I need to bend my will to, I need to shape my thinking around, I need to grow my feelings toward, because this is what God says is true. You're not going to bend God's word to your will. It won't work. Number two is to develop a relationship with God's word that is cooperating with what the Bible wants to do with it in your life. And what is that? That the servant of God be thoroughly equipped to handle everything in a tough time, every good work. What does the Bible want to do? Not to make you feel good, but to make you strong, ready able to handle the uphill grind. Number three, use the Bible in a way it's intended to be used. How can I use the Bible in a way that actually makes me ready for the challenge? Four words. Number one, teaching. Use the Bible, in other words, like glasses, like a lens. Most of us come to the Bible with our lens, our perspective, and we try to see ways in which it validates what we want it to say. The first thing we have to do is recognize the Bible was given to help me see the world like God sees it. In other words, the way it really is. To see myself the way God sees me, both the good and the bad. To see God the way he is. Understanding the Bible gives me the filter through which to read and listen to everything else I read. Teaching is the raw content of what we are to believe. And that's what the spirit of sound mind, self-control, is given to us for. To be able to read the Bible in those ways. A second way we need to use the Bible, and that's the way it's designed to be used, is when we read it, we need to see it like a mirror. Exposing us and rebuking us. Because it shows me my true self. Not what I think or fantasize myself to be. And in that, it shows me where I've gone off the road, rebuking. Maybe I was never on the road. Oh, my goodness. 
and whether I'm even aiming for the right road. It shows me my forgiven and freed self, the way God sees me. It shows me my intended self, the way God is calling me to aim for. And it shows me my practically true self, how I'm actually living. Are you looking for that in God's word? And then we need to see it like a compass for correction. Recorrecting our direction. Calling us and pointing us in the right direction. It's not a map. The Bible isn't a map. You don't go to the Bible and say, oh, I need to make this decision today and maybe something in this verse will help me. No, no, no. The Bible's not a map. It's a compass. Pointing us in a direction, making sure our choices are in keeping with God's boundaries and direction. And number four, training in righteousness. I need to use it as I use it in three other ways. The Bible will become like, like barbells or dumbbells and every other piece of training equipment in the gym. John Ortberg reminds us that there's a huge difference between trying and training. Trying is attempting to do something without preparing for it. You're not going uphill without preparation. The Bible is the tool that helps us see what my one next step of obedience is to develop me for the next step and then helps me realize that I have the power to take that one step and in the end, it's amazing how strong I've become. Are you using the Bible as you read it in all four of these kinds of ways? If you will, if you do use the Bible in all four of these kind of ways, it's amazing how much the Bible itself will become your go-to tool. Let me wrap it up as the worship team comes up to lead us. Every year, in late summer, Chinook Salmon take a three-month, 1,300-plus-kilometer trek from the Pacific Ocean to their spawning ground, the place of their birth. They don't make it quite to Alberta, but almost 1,300 kilometers, the second-longest salmon run in the world, and every single kilometer is upstream. Every single kilometer. Sometimes they have to work hard just to stand still. There's no coasting. And sometimes at waterfalls like these, it is try after try after try. Sometimes jumping as high as three and a half meters, depending on the nature of the water and the size of the fish. Some of them won't make it, but they will not give up. They are going to die trying. Why? Because the call of their heart is for home and home is always uphill. Folks, through God's word because of the work of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, we know we're going to get there. We will make it. So why not just be like the salmon following the call of our heart to not give up on the long journey home together? Those of us in the next generation taking over from those in the generation ahead of us who are getting tired. We might do things differently, but we dare not believe things differently. The gospel is still the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's never worked to believe things differently. But when, because of the spirit of power, of love, and the sound thinking that God has given us, we give ourselves fully everything we have, because that's what it'll take, to be part of a church that takes it the next mile, we're not just going to have God's power. We're going to be surrounded by the support of all those who have gone before to keep going even though it's uphill. We're going together.
for tomorrow. Are you in? Let's stand together and sing our way out. <laughs>